pray. Lord God, we do ask that you show us Christ this morning. Show us redemption in your word. Pray, God, that you would empower this message, God. A message over leadership. Those who lead the church. Lord, I pray, God, that you would impress on our hearts the importance of that, Lord. God, that even in a sermon like this, you would change lives. More importantly, Lord, you would help change our church. I pray, Lord, that there would be a long line of strong leadership in this church, God, I pray. We love you. We need you this morning, God. Your word is powerful. Lord, we ask that you would manifest that in our lives today. Give me wisdom to preach boldly. May God that you rescue people. And may someone truly cry out, Hosanna, this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. First Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. We, uh, after spending a couple of Sundays with Palm Sunday and Easter service, we are back to our study of elders at 1 Timothy. Uh, this is our, I think, our fourth sermon on uh, just these uh, seven verses. Uh, and so uh, we have this week and next week, and we'll be finished up with uh, the teaching over these seven verses, and then we move into deacons. Um, and so just want a reminder of two very, uh, or at least one very important principle Regarding this, we've gone over several, but uh, one particular is um, that these qualifications that we see here in this text uh, are not traits um, that are only for pastors. It's not only for those who lead the church. These are character traits that we would like to see in all of our men. Uh, We would like what would be a dream for me would be that the only reason... You're a man that's a member of our church who is not an elder. It's because you don't want to be an elder. It won't be because you do not exhibit these uh, characteristics. And so this is not a passage uh, making a case for men who want to be pastors to be different in their moral purity or in their lifestyle uh, than those who uh, are not choosing to be an elder. Um, We are not called to be more holy uh, than the church members are. Um, 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16. I've read it every week that we've done this, I think. But Peter's instruction to believers is obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the elder is not called to be more holy than believers. I mean, how could I be called to be more holy than you have been called holy if that holiness that we've been called to is the holiness of God? We are all called to be holy. Now, it is true. I think James would teach this, uh, and I think Peter would teach this as well, and I think you see here in 1 Timothy 3 and in chapter 5 that clearly there is a distinction between pastors and elders uh, and covenant members of a church. That distinction is not in holiness. It is distinction in the calling of these men and 
the pattern of their lives. But it's not that we are more holy. Surely those of you who are over the age of, I'll say, 30, who have grown up in the church, probably at some point by now have recognized some level of unholiness in pastors. Amen? Uh, We are not perfect human beings by any stretch of the imagination. And so uh, we still fail, we still struggle, yet we know that those who lead the church uh, should have a pattern of holy lives. Uh, We would hope that all believers would, uh, not just perfect lives, but clearly lives serious about holiness. Now you may ask yourself, and I'm sure if you uh, are in uh, a lot of other churches, you may wonder why in the world are we spending this many weeks on just seven verses Who leads the church is one of the most important things that ever happens to a church. It is critical that the men who lead a church are the kind of men that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 5 describe. There are standards for those who lead the church. Qualifications, And I am glad that the Holy Spirit of God did not leave that to be subjective. I'm glad he made it clear about who should lead the church. I'm, I'm happy that there are standards in the Bible for men like me who lead the church. One, you need that to make sure I do that. And then I need to know what it means to be this kind of man so I can lead you. It's important that we get this, and the scripture is not confusing on this. It's very, very clear. I was flying out of Alabama Thursday uh, after spending a week in Alabama at work, and the storms that had blown through here last week were blowing through um, Alabama. Uh, I don't love to fly, mainly because I'm not in control of the aircraft. Uh, I'm the kind of guy who likes to drive everywhere I go, and so I want to be up there in the cockpit. Now, I would obviously have no idea what to do, but I would still feel better if I was up there, you know? And uh, we got into the plane, the pilot, as I knew he would, I'm a semi-weather buff and was watching the weather, the pilot got on and said, it's an hour and a half flight from here to DFW, and it's going to be rather bumpy. And I was like, oh, this is just wonderful. And he said, we have some storms, we're going to have to fly through, Uh, and he was correct, I thought bumpy was kind of a minor word that he used. He could have used one death-defying or, or terrifying or, or any other word that he could have used, but I guess they don't use those while you're still on the ground. For, but nevertheless, I was glad uh, while I was watching us go through these storms. I was glad that pilots have standards. Amen? I mean, aren't you glad that the guy who's flying the plane through a big storm didn't get the job because he showed up for tryout day at American Airlines, right? Are you glad for that? Like, if you can fly this or if you can read these numbers, you're hired. I mean, I'm glad that that is not the case. We want those standards in pilots. As I've said before, I, when I was younger, wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be an emergency room doctor. And when I was much younger in high school, I inquired about that. The um, counselor I had at the present, at that time um, 
thought it was quite funny that I wanted to go to medical school um, because of something about my grades, but nevertheless, uh, she thought that was quite funny, and I talked about the length of time, and she said, well, it's 10 years, and I went, like, 10 whole years? She was like, yeah, and I was like, you mean like what I've already done, but she's like, no, no, it's another 10 years. Another 10 years of school? I mean, I hated school, and I had absolutely no desire to go to school for 10 more years. But let me tell you, if you're having heart surgery, aren't you glad that's not a six-week course? Aren't you glad they went to school 10 years? I'm happy that they went to school 10 years. We understand in many other areas of life what it means to have standards. So it should not surprise us that for the men who lead churches that there would be a standard set for those men. And the reason we have spent so much time on this is we want this to be um, a series that is recorded, that we set aside, that when you come, our visitors come and want to know more about elders, we can hand them this, we record all of our sermons, but we want to be very careful and slow with this passage, that as we get ready in the future to add more elders, and you say, well, I just need to understand what that means, we want to take you back to these sermons, this is what it means. Because the scriptures are detailed when it comes to standards and qualifications. Let me tell you, I'm glad that the pilot had training. And I'm glad that the doctor who works on me has training. Let me tell you, you better hope that the standards and qualifications that are in First Timothy are in your pastors. Or we are headed for disaster. And that begins with you as covenant members to hold a church accountable. I have been shocked to be in healthy churches who were doing it the right way, whose pastors either passed away or moved on to another church or retired only to see their successors hold none of these qualifications in many ways and take the pulpit. It's mind-boggling to see what can happen in those churches. So I want you to get it deep into your DNA, what it means in this passage for there for you to have an elder. Let me, ver- let me start off verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 7, but we're going to tackle 3 through 7 because we've done 1 through 2. But let me go ahead and read it in its entirety. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the holy inspired word of God through Timothy says this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Verse 3 begins the qualifications with an elder 
cannot drink alcohol. No. Despite what I might have been taught as a young man growing up in the Baptist church, and despite what you may have been taught, that is not the teaching of the Bible. No amens. Must not have any drinkers in here. The Bible does not teach that you cannot have alcohol. Does teach that. I would love to sit with you if you think it does. But the Bible does not teach that you cannot have alcohol. Now, I've heard the arguments. I've heard the arguments that um, a pastor should not be someone who drinks. I've heard all those kind of things. And I've heard even that the alcohol, the, the wine and the Bible didn't have alcohol in it. But it's interesting to me that in this text, uh, there's something about not being a drunkard, which means there's apparently something that was fermented uh, that you could drink. And it doesn't say that a pastor should not drink and says it should say that you cannot be a drunkard. It's interesting to me that there has been an entire debate about this one particular characteristic of an elder. Very little attention is paid to many other ones, but for this one, there is a great deal made up about it. It's strange to me how often in the church we make things sinful. The Bible simply does not call sinful. Drunkenness, sinful. Drinking alcohol in of itself and not becoming a drunkard is not sinful. In fact, I will go even further than that and say, not only is that not a biblical idea, it's actually not a rest of the world idea. It's really not even a North American idea. It's really a southern United States idea. In fact, there are actual seminaries in other countries in which there are actually bars in the seminary. Isn't that crazy? But only in the South do we have this concept, which is comical to me. (laughs) It's comical to me that one of the things that is most enjoyed in the South is alcohol. And yet for the church, it's one of those things that pastors shouldn't be doing. I think it's weird and it's strange. Because the Bible doesn't call that at all sinful. Now, I understand what the church might have been doing. I understand the response of the church to keep people from becoming drunks. Years ago, I was on staff at a church as a youth minister. And I had just come on staff and had a life center there. I know I've told this story before, but uh, in an upstairs room that did not have a lot of room, they had a couple of pool tables. I found that surprising. And so I was fairly decent-sized church, and I asked the people, why are the pool tables up in the upstairs rooms where there's hardly any room instead of in these rooms down here where there's all kinds of room? The response was one that um, I wanted to laugh out loud, but I really needed a job at that present moment, so I chose not to. But the response was simply this. We put them up, up, up there. They were donated to the church, but we've been fearful that the youth might like Playing pool. And then the only place they could play pool as an adult would be at a bar. And then if they did that, they might become alcoholics. Oh, you're serious. <laughs> they were serious. And so here's this idea of the church. They might sin. And so what we want to do is we want to make sure we take away any opportunity for that to happen, which has been the southern United States idea on alcohol. <laughs> 
Here's the deal. Because we know it causes all kinds of problems, here's the stance the church will take on it. Just avoid it at all costs. In fact, we'll just call it sinful. Except the Bible doesn't call it sinful. Now, it's noble that the church doesn't want people to become drunks. And I love that idea, clearly. I was a cop, and I can tell you about 70% of the people I took to jail, a contributing factor of their criminal behavior that night was they were drunk. They get it. But that is the sin. The excess drinking of alcohol, not the drinking of alcohol. You say, what's the big deal here? It's a big deal to me to say that the Bible says something that the Bible does not say. It's a big deal. Years ago, I was at a youth conference at Reunion Arena. Well, I think they rebuilt, I think it's American Airlines now, but way back then it was Reunion Arena, where the Mavericks played. About 20,000 students. When the preacher made this comment, if you ever drink alcohol in your entire life, You are sinning and may not be a believer. What? That's why it's important that we teach the Bible and what the Bible says. Now, you may, if you're here and you don't know me real well, you're probably saying this in your mind. I bet he likes to drink. (laughs) I got a surprise for you. I have never had alcohol. Not one time in my entire life. Now, there's always some smart aleck in the room who says, well, have you ever had cough syrup? (laughs) Okay. But I've never drank alcoholic beverages in my entire life. I made a commitment as a young teenager to avoid that because of a sermon I heard preached, not on the fact that drinking alcohol was dangerous, believe it or not, in a BMA church. Brother James Schaefer, who you would think in that kind of an atmosphere, in that kind of time period, it would have been don't ever drink. Instead, he said this. There are so many negatives that can occur by drinking alcohol that I would ask you just to avoid it. And I remember as a 12-year-old kid, a new Christian, making the decision to not drink. And I can make a great argument that there are a thousand other non-alcoholic beverages that exist today that did not exist in biblical times that I find pleasurable. I love to drink Dr. Pepper, and it will make you fat. Evidence. However, will not impair your ability to drive a vehicle, unless you're a little hyped up. It generally will not cause you to commit crimes. Obviously, it can cause some of the issues, but it's not something that can cause you to be drunk. And I can give you a thousand arguments on why drinking alcohol may not be the wisest thing. Let me help you out. If you're here today, you're like, oh my gosh. He just gave us permission to drink. Well, one, there's some laws that you have to obey in Romans 13. And if you're not of legal age to drink, then you should obey those laws. Number two, if you are a person who finds yourself doing things in excess, I'm one of those guys, you should probably avoid alcohol. If you come from a family where alcoholism is a problem, there's a good chance that it can become a problem for you. And maybe it's just best if you don't drink. And so I can give you lots of wise and unwise. I cannot tell you that drinking an alcoholic beverage is sinful. But I can tell you this much. Wherever you land on the alcohol debate, and generally speaking, if you're above the age of 50 and you grew up in a Baptist church, I know where you land. If you grew up in an alcoholic home, 
But there was violence and abuse because of alcohol. I, I know where you land. But we need to land where the Bible lands. And the Bible teaches that you are free to drink alcohol. And I know there's a 1 Corinthians 8 passage, and we don't have time to get into that, but I'd be happy to meet with you and even clarify that passage with regards to alcohol. But I know this, wherever you land on the alcohol debate, we can all agree on this, that an elder, a pastor, or anyone who wants to be a pastor, who is known for his drunkenness, is not a guy qualified to be an elder. A man who has a pattern of being addicted to alcohol is not a guy that should be an elder. But I'll tell you this much more. If you are a believer in here and your reputation is the fact that you get drunk a lot, you have a problem. And it's called sin. And the solution for your sin might be to no longer drink. Well, there's that one. Wasn't that fun? It's just strange to me. Well, we'll get into that in a little bit. We'll come back to alcohol in a minute. But anyway, next is not violent but gentle. This could go in conjunction with someone who drinks too much as well. Uh, Yet you don't have to be drunk to be a jerk. Amen? Not violent but gentle. How a man... And the pattern of a man and what he is known for, how he talks to his wife and how he talks to his children and whether or not he is in control of his temper. And does he have his an anger problem when confronted about sin? And just because someone is wrong about what they're saying to you does not necessarily entitle you to be a sin, to be a jerk or to have a sinful response. To be a person who is not violent, but gentle. Not a person who responds violently. Not only physically violently, but even words. And the anger that you have. When someone confronts you, if your response is a violent response, or a strong response that looks ungodly, that is the pattern of your life. Or if it's the pattern of a man's life who wants to be an elder, they are not qualified. They are not to be violent. But instead, they are to be gentle. Do you have a quick fuse? Constantly upset about stuff? Do you have this struggle with being angry, strong, and lashing out, and not gentle? Well, you're not qualified to be an elder. But in addition to that, if you're a believer, you shouldn't behave like that anyway. We should behave with the right responses, and we should not be known for being violent or gentle. Or violent, we should be known as gentle. We should not be known as violent, but instead gentle. The next one is not quarrelsome. And you could easily argue that this could be thrown in with those other traits. And you know these type of men, men who are quarrelsome. These are generally the ones who always have to be right. How many wives are thinking of their husbands? No. Mine's out of town, I guess. I get off on that one. Those who have to always be right. Remember those? There was a time in my younger life where it didn't matter what the subject was. I wanted to find a way to disagree with you. Like, even if it was something we agreed on, I still wanted to search for an angle to get into a debate. Any of you ever been around those kind of people before? 
Yeah, they're not a lot of fun to be around, and the Lord had to do a lot of work in my life. But you know these type of men. It's a pattern of their life. It's the guy you never want as a boss. Amen? Have you ever worked for that guy? It's also the guy you never want working for you if you're the boss. It's the husband who has to have his way and throws fit or becomes violent or argumentative when he doesn't. And it's the co-worker who never is wrong about anything. And when it comes to church leadership, when it comes to leading the church, it's the guy who argues over every theological point, no matter how small or minute, and he makes everything a mountain out of a molehill, and he decides, as I did when I was younger, that every hill is worth dying on. Until you die a few times. And then you figure out, maybe I shouldn't fight about every one of these things. But somebody like that will be a miserable elder. Not only for the other elders who have to deal with that, but it would be miserable for the church as well. Now there are clearly times that you must fight over doctrine to hold to the truth of Scripture. And there are times that you make a stand. But in a healthy church... You will seldom be alone as an elder on those issues. But if you find yourself continually alone while an entire godly elder team is on the other side, well, then you might not be the right guy to serve as an elder. We don't want those quarrelsome people within the elder movement. As clearly, you don't want them as not a good thing as a believer, as a covenant member, to be someone who argues all the time either. Next is not a lover of money. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Greedy Christians, greedy Christians are not a good thing. Would you agree? A believer who is motivated by money and is greedy for money, according to the scriptures, will pierce themselves with many pains. It'll be a problem. So we don't want those guys as elders. Because greedy elders are an extremely dangerous thing for a church. Because they will be motivated by money. I understand that temptation. Do you not feel the same temptation in your own world? Uh, to make more money, to, to buy more things? Uh, maybe you're different than me, but I, I feel the same temptations and the same struggles to buy things in this life, to store up treasures here. Like, I mean, it sure helps pay the Sweatco bill, amen? It does. But there is a problem if your focus is money, and Jesus said it well. You can't serve both God and money. And for pastors who find themselves motivated by money, they say things like this. I need our church to grow. And inside, it's not necessarily because they want their church to grow because the kingdom is growing. 
It's because they want it to be the full time. Yeah. See how that happens? And, and the pastor begins to manipulate and say things in order to gain more and more people. Greedy elders are a dangerous, dangerous thing. Number four, he must, or, or verse four, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? I want you to catch the phrase manage. Some translations change that to rule. Another reference to a man's role in leading his family. But how? It says, well, he who does this well. Not badly, not sinfully, but well. Loving his wife as Christ loves the church. Raising and instructing his kids in the discipline of the Lord. Those are clear commands in Ephesians. This is not a man who is some kind of a taskmaster where his wife has to get permission to speak and his children are terrified of him. That is not what we are looking for in men. That is not what it means to manage your household well. It means to love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for it. That's the kind of man that manages his household well. It, the, the man who manages his children well is one who raises them up in the discipline of the Lord and does not exasperate them. Clear command in Ephesians. Now here's where we get back into the alcohol debate. It is interesting to me that things like having a beer are looked down on more for a pastor the one who has an unruly family. Let's just be honest. My children, I don't believe, have a pattern. Matt's already smiling at me, so maybe I need to resign. I don't think my children are known for misbehavior. I don't think they are known for ungodliness. They are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But imagine if my children were known for that. If my children were unruly, the children that nobody wants in their Sunday school class because they will not behave. The one who, despite all the instruction, rebel and argue and fight and disrespect authority. Let me tell you the flat out truth. That guy has a better job of retaining his role as a pastor than if he ever drinks a beer in a public location. Right? You had a beer? Yep. Fired. Kids are unruly. Kids will be kids. We even have an entire name for that. And, and you know it, right? What are they called? What are, what, are, what are kids and preachers called? PKs. What a terrible thing in our society that the PK word is a joke about the behavior of pastors' children. When that is actually a disqualification to be a pastor. It's a big deal to make something sinful that the Bible does not make sinful. And to make less or to ignore what the Bible clearly says is sinful. I have told my children for a long time, not only do you represent Christ, 
but you represent your family. And not only do you represent your family, you do represent me as a pastor. And that is true. It has consequences, not only for your own behavior, not only for your family, but even for me as a pastor. Your behavior means something. Now, pastor's children, like myself, are prone to make mistakes and are prone to be sinful. And I understand that just like myself, they tend to be more in the spotlight and their behavior or misbehavior is more likely to be documented than others within the church. But nevertheless, an elder must manage his family well. Here's another topic. This also has to do with the wives of elders, those who might be married. It's not a requirement to be married to be an elder, but if you are an elder and you have a wife, people might say, well, there's no qualification for the wife of an elder. There is. And here it is, that an elder must manage his family well. She is also known for things. And the scripture calls her to be submissive, not a slave, not someone without a voice, but submissive to a man who should be loving her as Christ loves the church. But it means that what the children are known for impacts the elder and his ability to be or can continue to be an elder. What a wife is known for and her behavior and her reputation is also and does also impact the qualifications of an elder. Is she not a part of a household that must be managed well with all dignity? She is. A gossiping wife, for example, would be a bad thing for an elder's wife to be. As elders deal with sensitive matters within a church, you would be shocked in a church of 65 covenant members how many sensitive matters our elders have had to deal with. And if any of that were to go to our wives, or we were ever to discuss anything with our wife about something like that, which generally we don't, because I try to protect my wife from all that stuff as well, but nevertheless, can you imagine the damage to a church if a pastor's wife gossiped about that? It's dangerous. And there are godly women who have strong personalities and strong opinions. There's nothing wrong with that, as long as they are not sinful. But if their husband is an elder, and he may lead well, but he may not have a strong personality. And it is critical that the wife is not seen as someone who overrules her husband. It is the husband who must manage the family. That's the teaching from Scripture. Am I just getting all over people's toes today? Like, we're dead quiet. Either the sermon is really stinking really bad, or these are just complicated deals. But it's the Word of God. We have to manage our families well. That includes your children and it includes our wives. I'm not saying that there can't be healthy discussions about decisions. I'm not saying that between a husband and wife. That should clearly happen. I'm talking about a wife who rules the husband. And if she doesn't get her way on something, then it's miserable for the husband. Like you, you know this stuff happens, right? So we had an issue in a previous church where a guy applied for eldership 
And this was his wife. The gossiper of the town. It was a joke that if you wanted your secret to get out, tell anybody related to her family. Because if she found out, she would say it. The husband had a very quiet spirit. The wife had anything but a quiet spirit. I believe she was a believer. When she was confronted with sin, she would confess it. But her overall pattern, she struggled in these areas. And he struggled to lead the family because she refused to let him. He applied for eldership. And he was denied. I was living living in a house that they owned. You know where this is going. (laughs) The wife ruled and we were kicked out. See, it's important that a man manage his household well. Of course, he said, when we asked him, does this have anything to do with the fact that you're not getting to be an elder? He said, oh, of course not. But we are moving to a different church. (laughs) And you have to get out of our house. (laughs) It's important that men lead well. And you've probably met men like this. Well, the husband walks on pins and needles, fearful of leading, fearful of making decisions. And listen, anybody can lead a family who agrees when the family agrees with the decision. But how a man leads his family when his wife and his children disagree with the decision is everything about a man leading well. How does he lead then? And listen, if an elder can't lead his own family well, then how will he lead a group of families well? It's an important thing. So don't move too quickly past this passage. It has implications for us. We want our men to be godly who lead the church. We want their families to have patterns of godliness. And we want their wives to be godly as well. Now Titus chapter 1 verse 6 gives an interesting additional detail to this command. And it says this, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. There is discussion among many theologians over this. A a better translation uh, in my belief is the New English translation says it this way, with faithful children who cannot be charged with dispensation or rebellion, meaning faithful children. This does not necessarily mean that every child is a believer. Otherwise, if you had six children and one was two and the other one was 15, you couldn't become an elder until they had all professed Christ and had been baptized. That doesn't seem to be what it means. Or if you are an elder and you're leading the church, and your 15-year-old suddenly decides that they're not so sure about Christianity anymore, and they're struggling, not rebelling, but they're struggling, grappling with the idea, well, the pastor would then have to resign until that person became a believer. That's clearly, I don't think, what it means. Instead, it is this idea that the children are following, that they are in line with Christianity. I think it just falls in line with managing a family well. They are faithful to the faith, meaning they're not open to being charged with being anti-Christian 
with their behavior. Though they may be wrestling with their faith, they are not repulsed by it. They are submitting to their parents, and they are not accused of a pattern of ungodliness. For six, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. If all of this is about pattern of lives, if it's all about patterns, then it would be very, very difficult to be a new believer and suddenly become an elder because there'd be no period of time for the church to watch that man to see if he has developed a pattern of godliness. So I think that's a fairly easy one. And number seven, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I think the opening part of 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that these overseers must be above reproach. These pastors must be above reproach. Not sin-free, but blameless. Meaning they are known for following God. And then in verse 7, it almost comes back to that when it says that they should be well thought of by outsiders. I said it before and I'll say it again. If you ever meet someone and you tell them that I am a pastor and they say things like, he's a Christian? That's a problem. That's a problem. I should be well thought of by outsiders. Otherwise, he may fall into the disgrace, into a snare of the devil. In closing, what are our men in this church known for? What are you as a man known for? I went to your work and I talked to your co-workers. What kind of jokes do you tell? What kind of language do you use? What's your reputation when the boss passes down a new policy, a new rule that you disagree with? How do you respond? If I'm in your home and I'm, and I'm watching how you treat your wife, would it be in a way that Christ loves the church? If I'm looking at how you raise your children, is it in ways that promote Christ? These are important questions for us as a young church to get right. Because if we get our pastoral leadership wrong, if we don't take this seriously, if you who are covenant members don't hold us as elders accountable to this behavior that is profiled in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1 and in 1 Timothy chapter 5, then our church is in trouble. I have a calling on my life to obey the scriptures. And you have a calling on your life to make sure that I behave and obey the scriptures. It's important. Now what makes it possible for men to have a pattern of holiness in their life? Only one thing. And that is the Holy Spirit indwelled in their life through the power of the gospel. No man will be perfect. We struggle, but we should have a pattern of life that points others to Jesus. Men who have been changed. As the Christian songwriter Andrew Peterson says... Men who have been seized by the power of a great affection. I should be known as someone who is seized by the power of a great affection. And that is Jesus. Here's the gospel. You were born into sin with no hope. 
separated from God the Father because of your sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. You sin well all by yourself. You were hopeless. Doomed for an eternity in hell. But God loved you. Even in your sinful state, while you were rebelling against him, while you were actively involved in sin, God loved you. He didn't ask you to clean up first so that he could love you. He didn't ask you to stop sinning first so that he could love you. He looked at all of your mess, all of your junk, and all the stuff that you've done wrong. And he says, even in that, I love you. And here's how much I love you. I'm going to send my son to take your punishment on the cross. And he's going to overcome sin and he's going to overcome death. And if you repent of your ways and you put your faith in his sacrifice, you will be made righteous by Christ. And you'll be brought back into the family of God. And people say, well, how do I do that? You repent you believe. You don't have to take my hand to do that. We don't have to have music playing to do that. We don't have to have any of that. The calling is simple. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Scholars used to me not always having any music at the end. I'm going to pull that again, Scholar. Sorry, Scholar's back over the guitar. He was coming. He knows me. He's not sure. We're not going to have anything. I just want to remind you again of the truth of this passage. It's important what you as a church do with leaders. It's important. And your role in that is to hold me accountable. If you see a pattern in my life that is ungodly, you call me out on it. Do not let me continue down that road. Pull me aside and say, I see this in your life. It's not godly. It's not godly. And if I respond violently, then I'm disqualified. (laughs) It's important what we do here. In closing, I'll say this. If you're a visitor with us, we welcome you. Hope that you're glad that you were here. Hope that you'll see our church take seriously who stands behind these pulpits. Our three elders that we take seriously here. I know you... Have a chance to get a gift bag at the back. Wayne will be back there with that gift bag. Hope you'll meet with him. He'll just say hi to you and give you some a little goodie bag, I guess you would say, for coming and visiting with us, stuff about our church and some other things. Let me read this to you. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 is our benediction. Because the calling on an elder's life to be holy is a calling on your life as well. And ladies, just because this is a passage about men leading the church and they should not be violent or quarrelsome, And they should be gentle. Guess what? You should be the same thing. This is not a place for the women to go, well, I guess I can be violent. (laughs) It's not right at all. And we see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And Paul says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Believers, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that whether I come or see you or I am absent, I may hear, I may hear of you And that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. May that be the reputation of our church. 
I love you guys. Thank you for being here, and you are dismissed.